Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Amen. Well, good morning. I was 17 years old, and it was junior year of high school, and for the first time in my life, I had a car that I could actually drive to school by myself. Uh, it was an older car, but I loved it. It was a 1989 Mazda 929 with a sunroof and a plush seats. It looks sort of like this one, although it looked nicer back then. If you could transport yourself back in time, it looked nicer back then. It wasn't the most fun car to drive, but it was great to have the freedom of being able to drive uh, myself to school, drive my brother Zach uh, with me most days to and from school. Now, there was one particular day I remember I was headed home from school alone. Uh, Zach wasn't with me. I think he had an appointment or something like that. He was with my mom and with my brother Adam. It was a little bit rainy, and in Little Rock, Little Rock's a little bit hilly. Um, There's this particular intersection on the way home where I'm trying to make a left turn up the hill. So I'm sort of going uphill and then even further uphill when I turn left. It's also one of those lights where you're on a small road getting on a much bigger road, so the light is a long light, and I did not want to wait. Uh, so I saw this yellow light pretty far back. I was like, I can make it through. I can make it through. I just need to keep my speed. Uh, and then sort of tap on the brakes in the intersection, sort of, you know, just like Tokyo drift myself up the hill, you know, that was sort of my plan. Uh, well, I think you can imagine um, what, what took place next. Uh, I kept my speed up, I tapped on the brakes, and I did not quite make that turn. <laughs> I uh, ended up hitting the curb and was a couple of feet away from hitting some much bigger things than the curb. <laughs> uh, so I skidded through the intersection and ended up sort of coming over the curb and I had to sort of like back up and like re readjust and then get back on the road. And thankfully I did all of that pretty quickly. Uh, and I realized I didn't hurt anything with the car. The car was fine. I was fine. Everything was fine. Uh, so to my credit, I recovered quickly. Uh, it was like the best it could have possibly have been. Um, and so you know, I thought everything was good. You know, I get home. I'm like, there's no need for mom and dad to know. I've already learned my lesson. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that kind of thing again. Everything's good. You know, Turns out my mother and my brothers got home right behind me, and uh, my mom asked me what happened in that intersection, and I was like, what are you talking about? Well, it turns out that when I was making that left-hand turn, my mom was in the right lane front row of this other road, the road that was intersecting it, and was like 20 feet away from me when this all took place. She had a front row view of what had just happened. And so, as you can imagine, um, I lost the privilege of driving for a week. And I think, in hindsight, that's pretty fair. In the moment, I was like, I already learned my lesson. But in hindsight, I think it is a pretty fair consequence. Now, uh, my parents had given me everything that I needed to be successful. They had told me uh, not to drive weird in the rain and to be careful with yellow lights and to you know, just take my time and that you know, safety is more important than speed. Um, they had sent me to driver's ed. My dad had spent countless hours in the car with me, teaching me how to drive too. Um, so my parents did everything that they need, needed to make me successful. They, and they even gave me the freedom uh, to drive and do all these things. Um, I had been told many times to be careful. So I had been given everything that I needed to be successful, and I had been given freedom. And in that moment of testing or in that moment of proving what I knew to do, I failed. I failed, and it could have been a lot worse than it was. 
Well, this morning, we'll be following the Israelites in their first days of freedom. Uh, Last week, the people of Israel crossed the Red or the Reed Sea. And as they did, as we talked about last week, they crossed the dividing line from their old life of slavery to their new life of freedom. So the question that we're going to ask this morning is, what are they going to do with this newfound freedom? Well, I'm not trying to get too far ahead of myself this morning, but I've titled this sermon, Freedom and Failure. (laughs) Freedom and Failure. And I want to add here that we're going to be talking about some difficult things this morning, some difficult questions in life. In some respects, probably the most difficult questions we could ask ourselves in life this morning. And I'm not going to answer everything for you. I wish I could solve everything in a 35-minute sermon, but it's just not going to happen. So uh, as Tim Mackey says, these things are going to take some long walks and some tea and some time to think about and consider these things. Another thing that will be helpful for us this morning is uh, it'd be helpful for those of us who know the end of the story. Many of us know the end of the story that uh, this group of Israelites is not going to make it into the promised land, that God's going to take 40 years uh, for this first generation to die out and for the second generation to get older. Um, And so we need to forget that that's the end of the story because what we're going to see this morning and the next couple weeks uh, as we go through the rest of the Exodus narrative is, is that uh, this isn't necessarily God's plan for that to happen. That God, if, they, if, the, if this group of people had responded the way that God wanted them to respond, uh, I believe God was willing to lead this group into the promised land. These, this, these people were just simply not ready to enter. And I think there's a couple of ways for us to think about that fact, the fact that this group of people was not ready to enter. On one hand, uh, I think we should have compassion for this first generation. Uh, They were enslaved to Egypt. They faced remarkable hardships. They saw all sorts of cruelty and injustice in their lives. And so I think we can't condemn them too quickly. Uh, We sometimes falter just like they did. And I think it's important for us to remember that. But on the other hand, they had also spent about a year watching the plagues happen, um, showing God's nature. They had just uh, experienced the crossing of the sea, which is probably like, in my mind, arguably the greatest miracle of the Old Testament. Okay, so they just had just literally last week we talked about them experiencing that. Uh, So they, I think, also should know better than to doubt Yahweh. Uh, They should experience more trust as they go through life. Um, And so what we're going to see this morning is that God is trying to use the circumstances in the wilderness to show the Israelites lovingly where they need to increase their trust, their faith in him. And so we're going to pick up this record. We just experienced the crossing of the sea. Uh, They've just experienced this incredible high moment, this moment of miracle, and they've just given praise to God. It's like one of the highest moments in the Exodus account. They've come through the water. They're a free country. Uh, They're they're heading toward the promised land. They've just praised God. And I think that juxtaposition with what we're going to read this morning is important. So we'll pick it up in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, Moses, cried to the Lord to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. That's interesting. Saying, if you will diligently listen, or listen, listen in the Hebrew, if you will listen, listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. 
Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So the Israelites had encamped at the Gulf of Aqaba, I believe, and had refueled, and now they've taken three days to go into the wilderness. Finally, they find another place where there's water. Uh, the name of the place is Mara because the water is bitter. And so the Israelites are like, we can't drink this. This is water's too bitter. We can't, we can't go through with this. So Moses cries out to Yahweh, who answers by showing Moses a log to throw in the water. Um, now, our friend Colin Humphreys, uh, who wrote the Miracles of Exodus, he talks about how acacia wood, which is in this part of the world, if it has been burned, it has enough charcoal in the wood to where you could like throw this into a salty spring, which is what he thinks Mara was, a salty kind of spring, and then it would essentially filter out the salt, okay? So there is like a naturalistic explanation for like how you could throw a log into the water and it would turn bitter water sweet. Um, now, I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, perhaps that's what it was and perhaps that's not what it was. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's how it happened or not. But the point being made here is found in verses 25 and 26. God, what God's trying to show them through the Red Sea crossing, through the plagues, through all these things, and now in this wilderness period where he's going to provide for them water and food in the desert, where you don't have food and water, what he's trying to show people is that he has the authority and the power over the elements of nature. So he can do what he needs to do to keep his people alive, even in the desert. So when we're, when we're thinking about this passage, I think it's, it's impossible to miss the big T word uh, that was there in, in verse 25. There he tested them. So I want to talk about this. We're going to spend a lot of time thinking about testing this morning. Now, in a pr prior life, I was a math teacher. And here's a picture of me from about 12 or 14 years ago as a teacher. Um, if you want, you know, I, I look, I feel old looking at this picture because like all of these kids are like in their twenties now. Um, and so, and they're getting married and having kids and all that sort of stuff. Now, in the course of my work as a math teacher, I gave a number of tests. Um, now I'd like to think that I was a good, fair teacher. Uh, I'd like to think that I was a nice teacher, especially for a math teacher. You know, and math teachers don't have this reputation of being particularly like nice and friendly and accommodating, but I like to think that I was all those things. So did I ever want to see a kid fail a test? No, no, I never, no matter how annoying or how upset I was with a particular student, and that happened few and far between, but it did happen. There was not a single kid that I ever wanted to fail a single test on any occasion, never wanted a kid to fail. Uh, but did some of my kids fail tests? All the time, <laughs> all the time, all the time, kids failed my tests. Now, was it because my tests were too hard or because I didn't prepare my kids well enough? Uh, you know, me, you know, years after the fact, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say I prepared them enough. You know, I, I solved question after question, just like the ones on the tests on the board. I gave them homework. We talked about the homework. I had hours before school, hours after school, you could come and talk to me, all these things, right? So... You know, maybe my kids would disagree with me. My former students would be like, oh, yeah, his tests were hard or something like that. I don't know. But I feel like they were fair tests. And I wanted, um, I wanted them to succeed. I essentially gave them the right answers that they needed before they took that test. Um, I wanted my students, the whole point of this is I wanted my students to go from here to here in their understanding of math. And I wanted them to be able to, to see that themselves. I wanted to be able to objectively uh, see it myself as well. So the purpose of the test 
the test that I gave was to demonstrate to both me and to the student exactly how far they had progressed. Had they gone from here to here? Had they gone from here to here? Maybe they didn't progress at all. Had they gone from here to here? You know, how far had they progressed was the point. So when we think about this wilderness period, the wilderness period is a time when God is teaching his people what it's like to be in a relationship with him, what it's like to be free from slavery, what it's like to be free to serve him. Now, remember, again, that the Israelites, they've been in slavery for generations. Uh, they were used to being in a polytheistic society. And in that society of Egypt, it wasn't just polytheists. They weren't just polytheists. The point is, is that you couldn't go far without seeing a statue of Anubis or a statue of Ra or a statue of this god or a temple to that god. Literally, gods were all around them. And now what they're being asked to do is they're asked to, to trust in a God. They're being asked to trust in a God who has immense power and control over the elements. But nonetheless, God is invisible. God is invisible. He's not like the gods of Egypt where you can just like run around and like see him everywhere you go. He's invisible. So he's trying, God is trying to show the people of Israel where they can improve. He's trying to take them from here to here. They're used to making decisions by their senses. And trusting Yahweh is not always the easiest or the most obvious thing to do. See, God, for whatever reason, doesn't smooth out all the bumpiness that we experience in life. Like we talked about, I think, a couple of the prayers earlier, you know, God doesn't just like remove things immediately from our past. Sometimes we have to walk through these things. So there are these ups and downs, there's these bumpy, this bumpiness in life, and God doesn't take all that away. He doesn't lead the children of Israel into an oasis in the middle of the desert where they just spend 40 years camping around this oasis. That's not what happens. They end up on a, on a specific route, and I don't know if God had a choice on what route to take to the mountain, but for whatever reason, he's taking them on this route that has water and food problems essentially the whole time. And he's showing them how to change their thinking. Now, before we move too far, I, I just also want to make a really big point here that it's important that we understand the difference between a test, a temptation, and time and chance, or just something that happens. Because all the Bible talks about all three of these things. I don't want us to, to end up in this sermon thinking, well, Will's saying that everything that happens happens for a reason. No, I argue strongly against that. I don't believe in that. So I'm not saying that everything happens for a reason. What I'm saying is sometimes there are tests, sometimes there is temptation, sometimes there is time and chance. Now, when we talk about tests, a test, another way you could think about this is a proving ground, a place where God shows you something about who you are. I believe when God tests his people that only their good is in mind. I really like this from the REV commentary about this word for test. They said, God's tests are meant to strengthen the person in their walk with him and also accomplish his purposes. I think both things are going on here in this record in the wilderness. It also reminds me, a uh, commentary pointed to Exodus 20:20, 20, 20, which we'll read here. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test or in the King James, prove you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So when we think about testing, when we think about God and the, the subject of testing, God is uh, doing this thing for their, their benefit, for their good. He's trying to take them from this level of faith to a higher level of faith. And he's giving them the right answers in advance. He wants them to grow in their faith so that they can see that he can provide food and water in the desert. 
Now that brings us to the second thing that could happen. Sometimes we face temptation. And I want to be clear here that God does not tempt us with evil, as it says in James chapter 1. God always wants us to succeed. So when we experience temptation, then that would have to come from our sinful desires, and I believe ultimately from the devil or the powers of this world. So you've got testing, which can be a godly thing, where maybe God orchestrates events or he uses circumstances in our life to show us something to help us grow, that sort of a thing. Then there's also temptation that comes from the devil, and that is always to sin and is a bad thing. Finally, we sometimes deal with time, chance, and other variables in life. Sometimes things just happen. We live in a fallen world. Um, sickness seems to be increasing as we live on this, on this uh, earth. Uh, things seem to be getting, in some sense, harder and harder. Evil gets worse. So things just happen. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So sometimes things just happen in life, and it doesn't mean that God's doing something. It doesn't mean that the devil's doing something. Sometimes just things happen. We live in a fallen world, and the circumstances of our life are not perfect. They will be perfect when Jesus Christ comes back and the kingdom comes on earth. But that time is not now. There's one last thing I think will help, that will help us as we continue reading through this passage is, and that is that we tend, and it's a, it's a normal modern Western thing to do, but we all tend to read the Bible with ourselves immediately in mind. We see God testing these people in the wilderness and immediately we think about the bad things that happen in our life. Oh, is that a test from God or not? You know, what's going on here? Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, they're not about you. <laughs> so just take that monkey and throw him as far off your back as you can it's not about you this is a classic example of when when we read the bible with ourselves in mind first it can lead to some pretty big consequences so what we need to do this morning is we need to understand what they were going through in this moment what god was teaching them and how he went about this process of instruction now, when, when we understand what he was doing through this teaching, through this training, through this instruction period in the wilderness, once we understand all of that, then yes, we might see applications in our own life. And we probably should see applications in our own lives. But this is, once again, just like we saw with Ephesians, this is not a record where we can immediately just like take this and copy and paste it to our lives. We have to think about it. We have to consider things deeply. So... So again, just want to wrap this up, this little excursus here real quick. Sometimes, yes, God tests us on some level, and it's always for our good. It's always to help us go from point A to a higher point B where we can grow in our trust and faith with him. Sometimes we deal with temptation, and sometimes there is another explanation. It could be time and chance. It could be the randomness of life. It could be a number of things. And we may not know which of the three it is, or especially if it's in that third category, it might be hard to figure out what's going on. And so I just want to point out something, that we don't always know the source, but our response in any of these situations should be the same. We should go to God in faith. That should be our response, no matter if it's a test or whether it's temptation or whether it's time and chance. So what is the point of this test? What is the point of this time of proving in the wilderness? Um, Dr. Carmen Imes, in her Bible Project class on the Exodus, talks about the concept of liminal space. And I know that's it's a weird term. It's not something I used a lot. In fact, I'd never heard of liminal space until I heard her class on Exodus. 
Liminal space is a transition between two times in life. Uh, an example would be if you move from one house to another house. That time, once you start packing up your stuff in your old house, before you've gotten completely unpacked in the new house, that whole time frame is liminal space. It's the time in between. You have comfort and you know, all the things that you're normally used to over here. You eventually get to a place where you're recentered and you're comfortable again. And you've got everything that you want right where it is again over here. All the way in between, you don't have comfort to the full amount that you're used to. You're being pushed in ways that you're not used to. Uh, another example would be uh, when all the kids go to college or leave the house. If you're an empty nester, if you've had kids and then you, all, you ship them all out, that, that space before you get comfortable with it, at some point you get comfortable with it. Now, some people that have been empty nesters, they, never, they stay in that liminal space for years. You know, they just never get used to the idea of the kids leaving. Some parents throw a party the weekend after the kids leave. <laughs> the liminal space happens for about an hour, and then they're good, and then they're good. So that's, that's, it just depends on the person. You know, it just depends on the person. But that time of transition is the liminal space. Um, this time in the wilderness is an in-between time for the children of Israel. It's their liminal space. Another visual example you can see on the slides here is this hallway. You've got all these different rooms. We can think about these rooms as different times in our life where we were comfortable and centered and felt good about things. Then when you go down the hallway, you're in the in-between space. You're in between a time of comfort. What she points out, what Dr. Carmen Imes points out, is that often in these times of transition, God is working to bring change in our lives. That's what God does with these liminal spaces, these times of transition. This time in the wilderness had a specific goal. What God's trying to do is he's taking a nation of people who have been slaves for generation, generation after generation, and he's trying to turn them into a nation of kings and priests. That takes time. That takes work. The Israelites have, a limited, have had a limited understanding of God to this point, and God is responding to that lack of understanding by showing them more and more of his nature. He's showing them that he can supply water and food in the wilderness. The point of this is that he knows that they're going to face even greater tests when they get to the promised land. They can't enter the promised land at this level. They've got to be up here if they want to succeed in the promised land. And so how does he take them from here to here? It's this time of wilderness, this time of testing, this time of proving. So the question that they have to answer is, how are they going to respond to this? They don't respond well, unfortunately. Exodus chapter 16, we're going to keep reading verse 1 here. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Man, this is some pretty hard grumbling. <laughs> then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may, here's that word again, test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. So chapter 16 begins a month after Passover. Passover is the 14th day of the first month. Uh, it says here that they're in the 15th day of the second month. So we're about exactly a month after Passover. We've been traveling for a month. You've been 
a month on donkey, with donkeys and with camps and not, you know, you're not comfortable. The whole point is you're not comfortable. And here we see that word test again. God is trying to teach them to be obedient. And he is going to give the people everything they need to be successful. He's going to give them food. He's going to give them water at every turn. The question is, who's going to listen? Who's going to obey? Who's going to remember what Yahweh said? Verse 13, let's skip ahead. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. So God gives them quail in the evening. He gives them bread in the morning. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that some of the Israelites disobeyed the part about saving manna overnight. They like had this food insecurity thing, so like gather way too much on the day and then it spoils overnight. Um, some miss the part about gathering extra on Friday and like baking it and boiling it on Friday so that you could actually rest on Saturday. So they go out on Saturday to see if they can find more manna and it's like gone. There's like nothing out there. So they, there are these bumps along the road where the people don't listen. They don't listen. They don't remember. They don't obey. I think it's also really cool, although we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, it is really interesting to me that here in the middle of the Exodus journey, the test is about resting. The test is about keeping the Sabbath. That's one of the biggest aspects of this test. I think there's something about that for us here in our modern American culture if we want to listen to that. So, again, the big question here we're trying to answer is who's going to obey? Who's going to rest the way that God wanted them to rest? Who's going to grow in their trust in God? so they can walk with him faithfully, who's going to go from here to here in their faith or trust in God so they can enter the promised land and do the things that God's called them to do. Because God's called them to a high and mighty calling to be a nation of priests. Let's skip ahead to Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Now the testing has turned around. That's not a good thing. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is the context of God. God literally provided water for them like a couple of Pages ago, right? <laughs> so Moses cries out to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. See, Moses, when he hears Yahweh's commands, he listens and he obeys. Verse 7, and he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? These people were still asking the question, is Yahweh among us or not? You think after the plagues, you think after the crossing of the sea, you think after the, the manna and the quail, the water, they would have already figured this out, but they haven't figured it out yet. Now, passing this test, I want to talk a little bit about what passing this test would have looked like. Passing this test would have looked like um, something like this. They, the people go to Moses, they say, hey, look, Moses, we trust Yahweh. 
can you ask him for some water? We'd really like some water. We're getting thirsty. Can we have some water? Now, if you have either had kids that are old enough, like three, four, to start asking for these types of things, or in my case, if you do have kids that are that age and know how to ask for things, uh, the vast majority of times that my kids come up to me, that's how they act to me. They say, hey, Dad, I'm thirsty. Can you help me with my water bottle? They don't usually come up to me and they say, why did you birth me just to kill me with thirst? <laughs> now, look, sometimes I will admit, even my kids, who I love to death, even my kids are about that dramatic, okay? Kids can be dramatic. But usually my kids ask me something like, hey, Dad, can you help me out? Because my kids understand that I want to help them and I'm able to help them. And by this point, Yahweh has demonstrated his character to them by sending Moses with signs, producing the ten plagues, parting the waters of the reed or Red Sea, fixing the water at Mara, and providing quail and manna for food. He's already shown, shown them that he wants to and that he will help them. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Water from the bottle. <clears throat> so the point is, is because the people quarreled with Moses in the context of God's provision for them when God had already provided for them every step along the way for like, we're, in a month, we're a month into the wilderness at this point. God's provided for them every step of the way. Moses tells them that they are testing Yahweh. And the text says it that way because it's a reversal of what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to get our attention that this is the opposite of what's supposed to happen. And if it's the opposite of what's supposed to happen, if he's testing us and now we go and we start testing him because we're not listening and we're grumbling and complaining and we're quarreling and we're getting violent instead of having faith, that's not a good situation. In the words of ladies' man, if you know the reference to Saturday Night Live, ladies' man, yeah, that is not good. This is not good. So God is giving them chances. He's giving them opportunities to grow in their trust, to grow in their faith, and they're being stagnant instead. Instead of going from here to here, they're staying there. Now, what's interesting about all this is that God's going to keep providing for them regardless of whether they pass these tests or not. They keep failing these tests, and God still provides for them. And this, I think, shows you God's incredible grace and mercy in all of this. Uh, Moses keeps interceding for them throughout the whole rest of the story. God keeps providing. Uh, this is what John Collins of the Bible Project said. He said, here's another example of God not saying, hey, pass the test, and then I'll rescue you. It's God saying, even if you fail the test, I'm going to rescue you, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to be in covenant relationship with me. I would add the word still. I'm still going to give you the opportunity to be in a covenant relationship with me. So to put this differently and emphasize this point again, God is not just providing the children of Israel with food and water in the desert. Yes, he is doing that. He is doing that, but that's not the only thing he's doing. He's also providing them with space, with grace, with mercy. He's providing them with an opportunity to grow in their trust in him and experience the fullness of what this relationship could be and needs to be for them to be the nation that he's called them to be. He's not just giving them food and water. He's giving them an opportunity. He's giving them time. He's giving them space. He's giving them grace. He's giving them mercy. And I also want to quickly say that when we start thinking about the application to our lives, that grumbling and complaining are different from telling God the truth. I'm not saying that we should hide the truth from ourselves and act like everything's okay. 
We can go to God and say, God, this is tough. I'm not doing well right now. This is hard for me. Can you help me with this? The Israelites came to God and said, why are you killing us? There's a world of difference between those two things. Going to God and saying, why are you killing us, exposes a lack of trust, a lack of faith. The Psalms are full of raw emotional prayers that we can and we should emulate. We should go to God in those moments. Briefly, I want to talk about the echoes that we see. Uh, This moment of testing, especially this last test at Massa and Meribah, has echoes throughout the Bible. You've got Psalm 78, Psalm 75, 106. Uh, There's an extended uh, section in 1 Corinthians 10 that talks about a lot of different ways where the Israelites had problems in the wilderness, both this incident and like many others that come later, uh, which is a really interesting one. And then Hebrews 3 as well. I want to close by thinking about the application of all this to our lives. Um, Again, the whole point of these moments in the wilderness is that God wanted the children of Israel to go from here to here in their faith. He wanted them to grow in their trust, to grow in their faith. When we think about our lives and what it takes for us to grow in faith, I want to say this morning that we can successfully go from here to here and go even higher. We can keep growing in our faith because just like the Israelites, God has given us everything that we need to be successful. But unlike the Israelites, we have an advantage. We have Jesus, our Messiah, the one who's greater than Moses. I find it interesting that in the wilderness, God provides them with manna. He provides them with bread from heaven. He provides them with water. And he provides them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to guide them. And what's interesting is that in the Gospel of John, in the span of like a chapter and a half, Jesus ties himself to three of those things. <laughs> he says, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. He says, whoever believes in me will never thirst. That's the end of John 6, 35. In John 7, he talks about giving living water or the spirit to those who come to him. And then in John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things that we see in the wilderness. Jesus is the greatest expression of God's provision in the wilderness of our lives. Yahweh has given us something greater than manna. He's given us something greater than water from the rock. He's given us the bread of life. He's given us spiritual water. He has given us the light of the world. We've been given Jesus, the Messiah, as our Lord. So no matter what we face in life, we can overcome because we have Jesus. Jesus, of course, is not just the greatest provision that God could provide for us. He's also the fullest expression of God's will in human form. And we can watch Jesus perform exactly what the Father desired throughout the course of his entire ministry. So my question is, did Jesus test people? Did Jesus challenge people to go from here to here in their faith? And he did. I thought of a couple. (laughs) Rich young ruler, what does he ask him to do? Sell everything you have and follow me. That's a test. That's a moment where he can pass by doing what Jesus says to do or he can fail. And he unfortunately failed. He challenged the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of Israel many, many times. They failed. Many of them did. But some of them came around. Some of them did come around and they did change. He challenged the man with a troubled son to increase his faith for healing for his son. The man famously responded, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. What happened? 
the boy was healed anyway. Grace and mercy was extended even though, I don't know, I'm not sure if the test was passed or not. It's a little unclear in the text. But grace and mercy covered for that. I want to point out in that last example that Jesus never turned down someone for healing, telling them your trial isn't over yet. You need to persist in your patience a little bit longer. Now, I don't know what that means for all the times when healing doesn't happen. But I will say that Jesus never turned someone down as recorded in Scripture. I want to close here by saying that we've been given freedom in everything that we need to be successful. As Galatians says, we should use that freedom to serve God, to serve others in love, and as Galatians doesn't explicitly say, but I'm going to say, to continue on this exodus journey toward the promised land in the kingdom of God. At the beginning, we talked about my failure to drive safely in that moment as a 17-year-old. Did my parents set a trap for me in that moment? No. My dad wasn't like, uh, Renee, why don't you camp out at that light at Barrow and Rodney Parham? And I'm just not quite sure if Will understands how to drive in the rain. And maybe he's going to take that left turn too hard or something like that. That's not what my dad did. It was just pure coincidence. And my mom, I talked to my mom about that this week. And she said it was Providence that she ended up right there at that intersection. I would say it wasn't Providence. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay. We can have different perspectives on these things. We see through a glass darkly. We don't have all the details. I don't have all the information. But the point is, is my parents taught me everything I need to be successful. They taught me not to be in a hurry. They taught me not to press yellow lights. They taught me to drive more carefully in the rain. They, they wouldn't have explicitly said this, but they would have told me not to try like Tokyo Drift up a hill if they had thought that I'd even thought about that. Oh um, so the point is, they taught me a number of things. They wanted me to go from here in my driving to here. In that moment, I didn't listen. Bad conditions contributed to me making a mistake while driving. It was bad conditions. It was bad bad decision making. It wasn't like this trial that my parents set up for me or something. Every time I get into a car to this day, in some sense, the question is, will I be faithful to drive like I know I should drive? In some sense, every time I get into the car, you know, driving a car is not the safest thing we do every day. Every time I get into the car, in some sense, it's like a mini trial or a mini test. Am I going to be faithful to what I know what, that I should do as a driver? Similarly, every day, every moment is a time for us to be faithful to live how we know we should live. Are we going to be faithful to listen to God? They weren't, but we can be faithful to listen to God. Will we be faithful to obey his word? They weren't. But will we be faithful? We've been given the Son. We've been given Jesus. Will we, be, will we be faithful to follow him every day of our lives? And again, we have been given freedom, and we've been given everything that we need to be successful. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy, for how you extend yourself to us. We're thankful for this Uh, wilderness period that you gave your people. You gave them time and time again, chance and chance and chance, and grace and mercy upon grace and mercy to learn more about you and to grow in trust. And Father, it saddens us to read that they weren't successful in this other than Joshua and Caleb, as we'll find out. But Lord, we see your intention for them in this testing, this time of proving was for their good. That the things that you provide for us is always for our good. And Father, we go through tough things in this life, things that we don't understand. And 
we may never understand them until we see you and see your son Jesus. And Father, I, I just, I ask you for patience. I ask all of us for you to give patience to all of us in those moments that are tough, that are incredibly difficult, Father. Please grant us your grace and your mercy and compassion upon us when we doubt you, when we struggle with the difficult things that we face in this life. Help us to, to grow in our faith and our trust in you day after day so that we can be the people that you've called us to be. Father, we're so looking forward to entering that promised land. We're thankful for all these things that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.